Listener Production. Chip Connolly is the founder of Joie de Vivre Hospitality, the second largest operator of boutique hotels in the US and former head of global hospitality and strategy for Airbnb, where he was instrumental in guiding the founders of this fast-growing startup into the global hospitality brand it is today. Inspired by his own midlife reckoning, Chip co-founded Modern Elder Academy in 2018, supporting students to navigate midlife with a renewed sense of purpose and possibility. In this insightful conversation, we discuss our fear of ageing, why midlife should no longer be viewed as a crisis, how sometimes this new season in our life requires new friendships and why it's imperative to cultivate individual identities and passions independent of our family responsibilities. The thing that actually can help you to show the breadcrumbs to finding your purpose are look at what excites you or what agitates you or what makes you curious. What's something from earlier in your life, maybe even childhood, that feels neglected that you felt passionately about? I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Through my years of studying and researching the connection between human behaviour, personal growth and transformation, I have discovered the keys to unlocking greatness within others. In this podcast, I share stories and experiences from my own teachings, along with conversations with inspiring guests to help you learn the simple tips, habits, practices and strategies to cultivate an extraordinary existence. Chip Connolly is a New York Times best-selling author. Chip's seventh book is Learning to Love Midlife, 12 Reasons Why Life Gets Better with Age. In its essence, this conversation is about how your body does not define you and how to grow comfortable in your own skin. And with age... Wisdom follows when the inner work is done. My hope is that regardless of your place in the journey of midlife, this conversation ignites a flame within you to discover joy, purpose and success in the years ahead, recognising that they have the potential to be your most fulfilling yet. Chip Connolly, you are such an interesting person and I'm so excited that we have you on today because your story is epic. Your wisdom is profound. But I want to start at the beginning. Can you tell us a little bit about your life in hotels and how that came to be and then your work with Airbnb? Sure. Um, I wish I had been hanging out with you in Byron Bay, getting the tan you have right now, Sarah. I mean, you know, up here in Northern Hemisphere right now, it's cold. I, uh, Yeah, I started one of the first boutique hotel companies in the U.S. Called it Joie de Vivre, which means joy of life in French, based in San Francisco. I was 26 years old, (laughs) sort of crazy when you think back on it. I didn't have any background in hotels. I bought a pay-by-the-hour motel in a bad neighborhood, and that's how I got started. And, you know, pay-by-the-hour, you know, all kinds of weird stuff happens in a pay-by-the-hour motel. (laughs) So I got to see the seedy side of life. Um, And then I turned into a rock and roll hotel that became famous. All kinds of famous musicians stayed there. And over the next 24 years, I was, uh, I I sort of became famous in the U.S. uh, as a pioneer boutique hotelier. We had 52 boutique hotels around the state of California. Each one had its own name. And uh, Joie de Vivre was the umbrella brand. And I loved it till I hated it. In my late 40s, I hit a really rough patch. And maybe we'll come back to that and and I'll talk more about that. But it woke me up to saying like, oh God, you know what? I I don't have to live my life this way anymore. And so I got to a place where I sold the company at the bottom of the Great Recession. And it's now a Hyatt brand called JDV. And I was not sure what was next. And so I went around the world going to Byron Bay to, to music festivals and going to Mardi Gras in, in Sydney. And I, I wanted to become the world's leading expert on festivals. Yes. And so I spent two years doing that. I, I was a founding member of Burning Man, the Burning Man board. So I was fascinated by the fact that the more digital we get, the more ritual we need. And I, I went to 36 festivals in 16 countries and created a website of the 300 best festivals in the world. And just as I was sort of enjoying that, I got a call from the founders of Airbnb. 
And this was 11 years ago. Almost nobody had heard of Airbnb, uh, at least nobody my age. <laughs> I was 52 at that time. I'm 63 now. And even though I was a hotelier, I didn't know much about Airbnb. But the founders called me and they said, Chip, how would you like to help us democratize hospitality? And we have no background in hospitality or travel. We're growing quickly globally and we need your help. We want you to be our in-house mentor. And ultimately they called me their modern elder because I was twice the age of the average person in the company. And they said a modern elder is somebody who's as old, as old, somebody who's as curious as they are wise. And I liked that curiosity and wisdom, the perfect alchemy of those two qualities felt like it really registered for me. So I said, sure, you sign me up for that. And I spent seven and a half years helping the founders steer their rocket ship to become the world's most valuable hospitality company. Wow. Yeah. And I can tell you more about that. But along the way, I got really curious about what it means to be in midlife and what it means to be a modern elder. And so that's, and that took, that takes me to where I am today, but we'll come back to that. You had a near death experience. How did that come to be? Yeah, well, it was not willed. It was not something I was looking for. Um, I had a broken ankle and a septic leg from a bachelor party. It's a long story. And they put me on a very strong antibiotic. And so I went on the antibiotic and I was like, okay, well, I'll, I'll handle this. And I was feeling better. Um, but then I was in St. Louis in the U.S. and I was giving a speech. And at the end of the speech, I sat down and was signing books, some of my books, and I slumped down in my chair and went unconscious um, because I was feeling very, I felt very, um, very nauseous. And um, they put me on the floor. I was unconscious for a few minutes. The paramedics showed up. And as soon as they put me on a gurney and they had heart monitors on me, uh, I went flatline. And that was the first time I went flatline uh, of nine times in 90 minutes. Wow. I had an allergic reaction to the antibiotic, but they had no idea what was happening. They didn't know it was a heart attack or a stroke or what it was. And I was 47 at the time. Uh, I was still running my boutique hotel company. And, but I was, I was going, I'd been going through a really difficult time. Um, I lost five male friends to suicide, uh, ages 42 to 52 in a two and a half year period. Mm. And, um, everything in my life was messed up. My long-term relationship was ending. I had a, a, a foster son who was an adult who was going to prison wrongfully. My company was running out of cash because of the Great Recession. I didn't want to be running that company anymore. So all of that stuff was happening. And then I have an NDE, a near-death experience, where I went to the other side. And each time I would come back from the other side, I would say to whoever was with me, here's what I just saw. And if they had been with me, you know, a few minutes before when I went to the other side, they'd say, well, that's the same thing you said last time. But that was a, that was a wake-up call, like the hotelier's wake-up call of saying, you know what? This isn't working, Chip. You're, you need to figure out how to change your life. And um, I don't think you need to have a near-death experience to be open to changing your life in midlife, but um, it certainly woke me up and it led to a, a huge bunch of changes that I made in my life. What were some of the most profound things that happened when you had the NDE? I knew you wanted to go there, Sarah. I just know you. I know you so... Um, <laughs> I can't not ask, you. I mean, really, it's my most favourite topic. Wow. Well, and why is it your most favourite topic? And then I I'll tell find you. it so, we've had a few people that have had NDEs on and I find it so yeah. interesting, just so interesting to hear the stories. And, it, you know, I think it gives a lot of people hope as well. Yeah. There's actually a festival, you know me, I'm a festival guy. There's yeah. a festival in northern, north, northwestern Spain about the... It's the something like the pilgrimage of the near-death experience. And everybody who's had a near-death experience ends up in a coffin um, in a parade and they're just waving at people from their coffin. <laughs> Sounds crazy. Uh, the, Sp the Spanish have the weirdest festivals in the world. Wow. I will tell you that. So what I, my, what I experienced was the same thing each time. I would find myself in a tranquil, like a, a villa or of some kind, like a mountain kind of villa that had a second floor and I was on the second floor and there was a high ceiling and a big skylight. And there was a lot of light coming into this, this like a living room on the second floor and I was floating. So I'm floating or flying 
just sort of like, you know, uh, stationary in this room and light is coming through, uh, the, the skylight such that it's casting a colorful kaleidoscope of colors, like a, like a rainbow on the wall. And there are birds actually in, in the indoor living room with me chirping and just sort of like, you know, talking to me with their bird talk. There's a frangipani, like a tropically scented oil that is filling the room with it, with scent, a beautiful scent. And um, there's a viscous, like a very heavy oil on the floor of the wood floor that's actually moving quite slowly to these stairs, going downstairs. And then there was a little bit of music. I, you know, there was like a little bit of like violins and a little bit of piano. But I didn't see anybody else. I, I, all I saw was the birds. <clears throat> all I experienced was a lot of sensory, like the colors and the smell. And the, I wanted to touch the the oil. I had arms that could actually extend from 10 feet tall in the room down to the floor so I could touch the oil. And I think if I, if I took one thing away from that experience, uh, actually maybe two, one is slow down chip mm. <laughs> because everything was in slow motion and my life was not slow motion. And, and if I've le- if I've learned a lesson since then, it's maybe try to slow down a little bit chip, but I'm still not very good at slowing down. So slow down. And then the other thing was like, look for awe. Just you, awe is everywhere. Mm. It's just that we have blinders on. And when we have these blinders on or what they would call in UK, the blinkers, uh, maybe you call that blinkers in Australia in, in too. Australia. Yeah. Yeah. Blinkers. <clears throat> when you have those blinkers on, you don't, you don't experience awe. And as someone who had a company called Joie de Vivre, like, you know, who believes very heavily in the idea of joy and creating joy and manifesting joy in one's life, I think I I was really taken by the fact that sometimes slowing down and seeking awe is really what we're supposed to do Mm. in this, in this life, especially when we don't have a lot of time left. Little did I know when I got out of the situation out of the hospital and all that. And years later when I was, I'd sold the company and moved on, I started studying awe and I was really fascinated by it. By it. There's a guy named Dacker Keltner. He's a professor in the US and he wrote a book called Awe. He's on our faculty at, at MEA, at the Modern Elder Academy. Uh, I'd highly recommend that book, Awe, because it helps you to understand how do you welcome awe into your life and do it as a practice. That's so beautiful. And obviously midlife, the topic of midlife has become something that you have studied a lot and you have written about and you've got your amazing new book, Learning to Love Midlife, which honestly, I know this is your seventh book. It's so extraordinary and you write so unbelievably beautifully. And I know a big chunk of my audience is in that phase of their life right now. What I want to know is you told me when we had spoken a couple of weeks ago that you have cancer. You've had it now for five or six years and that's been something else that you've had to navigate. And I wonder firstly like how you are and how that journey's been. People take different perspectives when they have cancer. Sometimes they go to war with it. Sometimes they ignore it. For me, I I have gotten very comfortable with the idea that cancer is a teacher. Cancer is my teacher. My job is to learn from cancer and from the cancer journey and then to graduate. <laughs> and um, I actually think I may be graduating now. Um, we'll see. Um, I'll tell you the, the story. So I found out five and a half years ago I had stage one prostate cancer. Not, it's not a big deal, It's but it's, you know, it, it's cancer. And I found out the day after my book, Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder came out. And I was like a little freaked out by it. I mean, the, the word cancer, it's the, the C word. I mean, like, really? I, you know, I have, I have cancer inside of me. And then I, I did my research and they put me on active surveillance. So we didn't do anything with it other than just monitoring me with, you know, with um, tests every three months. A couple of years later, it moved to stage two. And so we did, we did some work on it, you know, and I did some work on it. And I was, in terms of my lesson, I was like meditating more. I was... Uh, definitely cutting back on my alcohol consumption. I was eating better. I was walking and doing my 10,000 steps a day, exercising a lot. 
and doing, you know, intermittent fasting, et cetera. So I was, do, I was doing a lot of things. <clears throat> when it went to stage two, it was like, okay, well, that's not so great. And then they did this procedure called HIFU, which basically burned half my prostate um, as a way to get rid of the part of the prostate where their cancer was. And it's like, okay, they said, there's a 1% chance in the next five years it'll metastasize. So like, okay. And I have to say though, at that point when I felt like, oh, okay, the 1% chance, like that's not going to happen. I can go back to drinking some alcohol. I can go back to, you know, doing this and that. And I, and I probably didn't take good care of myself during that time because it was like sort of COVID, it was like the later part of COVID. And I think that I just wanted to celebrate. And so within 15 months, not five years, within 15 months, it metastasized to my pelvic limbs. And so now it's at stage three. And um, that's when I went on to, on hormone depletion therapy and, I had my prostate taken out, a radical prostatectomy, and then I had 36 sessions of radiation over two months. So that was my 2023, (laughs) was doing all of that while writing a book and marketing a book while running MEA, which we'll talk about, and giving a lot of speeches. So um, it was a lot. I think if I could really look at it, and, and now I'm through it, and the day after I finished my radiation, I had to go to New York to start my book tour. If I, if I could really recap my key lessons uh, from this cancer journey is, again, slow down, Chip. <laughs> knock, knock on my head. Like, am I going to learn this this time? Slow down. Spread out. Meaning I'm pretty excited. I get passionate about my calling. And I get really revved up about it. And I get very focused and I'm not a one dimensional person by, by normally I have so many interests and I'm such a curious person and I've done a lot of different interesting things, but when I'm really in the midst of pursuing a calling, I can get very focused. And I realized that I wanted to spread out. I wanted to really spend time with my sons who are 12 and nine. I really wanted to spend time with my close friends and my parents who are 86 years old. And I really wanted to spend time on my writing you know, even the writing that I don't share with others. And uh, and I want to spend more time with my partner, Oren. So long story short is I, that was one message. Another message is I don't have to be a hero, you know, and, and, and it's really good to be vulnerable and open. You're as sick as your secrets. And I really wanted to share my cancer journey. Now, my parents and, and my partner, Oren, all, all three of whom are extremely private, were shocked by the kinds of things I wrote about. I have a daily blog called Wisdom Well. And I don't just write about my cancer journey, but you know, every once in a while, I would, I, would, I would tell a lot of my story. And whether it's the emotional story or it's just like some of the physical side effects of the radiation, I was, I was telling my story. And I, I have to say, that was very healing for me. And more importantly, and this is one, one of my key lessons was, being that vulnerable and talking about losing my libido and uh, talking about, I mean, I mean, I hate to say this, but I'm going to say it, my last ejaculation, you know, because once you have a, your prostate taken out, you're never going to have one of those again. And talking about some of this, the physical side effects with my GI, my, my gastrointestinal tract and some of the embarrassing things that happen and et cetera. It was, it was probably TMI, too much information, But the part that felt so good is how many people, and especially men, wrote me privately and said, thank God, thank you for Mm. telling my story. There's no way I could talk about losing my libido with my friends. There's no way I could admit that I'm pooping in my pants and I'm wearing diapers. There's no way I can talk about the emotional turmoil of feeling like I now know what it's going to feel like to feel frail 20 or 30 years from now because you know, the combination of the hormone depletion therapy, I went down to 1% of my normal testosterone. That plus the radiation like kicks kicks your butt. So I think cancer was a teacher for me in, in, in very many ways, but one of the most important ways was to show that I can be a man and be vulnerable and be Mm -hmm. stronger for it and more courageous for it and, and be a role model for other men. And I really appreciate that. I, I still have troubles with my mom who really has a hard time with how how much I said and how explicit I was, but I have no regrets. I really don't. 
Although I, w- I have regrets in my life. I have regrets in my life. Let's be clear. I, I hate it when people say, oh, I, w- I wouldn't do anything differently. No, I have lots of regrets. But when it comes to being vulnerable and talking publicly about my cancer journey, I have no regrets about being so open. Because what you went through was sort of like a male menopause, which we you know, never really hear about. Oh, I have such admiration and, and empathy for women <laughs> because in fact, that is exactly what happened. So I went through hot flashes. I went through night sweats. I went through cog fog. I, I went through, you know, emotional roller coasters. Uh, I had all the kind of menopausal kind of things, I, you know, as a, a menopause experience. Primarily, that was not because of the radiation. That was because of the, what this is called ADT and, and androgen deprivation therapy. Yeah, what an experience. Wow. I can just say that I think more men should have to go through it <laughs> because they would be more inclined to, to realize just how strong women are, are mm. and how much, how, how courageous they are. You know, something that's really interesting that there's a lot of interesting things I read in your book, but one thing that stood out was the fact that, you know, we say, we talk about midlife as being like midlife crisis, like it's the worst time and, you know, people are getting divorced and they're waking up and realising that things aren't the way that they wanted it to be and they might not be as attractive as they used to be or whatever it is. Can you talk to us about why that isn't true and how we need to reframe this idea of moving into midlife? And and what are the years that are midlife as well? Like how do you define where midlife is sitting now? Because I know we're living longer and all that kind of stuff. Midlife is really the life stage between early adulthood and later adulthood. <laughs> what a surprise. Midlife would be in between those. So it really defi- it's partly defined by when do you think early adulthood ends? And some sociologists say 35, let's say. And then when does, when does later uh, life, uh, later adult life begin? And, and, you know, it depends on who you're asking. Uh, but uh, for some sociologists, they believe, believe midlife lasts from 35 to 75. And if you're going to live to 100, then I can see. And if you're working at still at 75, you might still think that's midlife. Classically, like, 50 years ago, 40 years ago, it was 40 to 60. So the fact it might be longer now makes a little bit of sense because we have more longevity. And frankly, in some industries, there are a lot of people in their mid-30s feeling like they're obsolescent because of artificial intelligence. And midlife feeling a little obsolescent in your career path is sort of one of the norms that has historically defined midlife. So that's the age range and, and how it's defined. You know, there's a a lot of social science research on this that shows that our level of life satisfaction declines starting in our our early to later, early to mid 20s. And it bottoms out around 45 to 50. So 45 to 50 is the low point in life satisfaction in adulthood. But what's surprising and, and, and particularly intriguing about midlife is that starting around age 50, and again, your mileage may vary. These are averages. Yeah. But starting around age 50, people get happier with each decade. And so their 50s are happier than their 40s, 60s happier than 50s, 70s happier than 60s, and women in their 80s happier than 70s. So it's like a U-curve that goes down, bottoms out around 45 to 50, and then goes up. So... So the midlife crisis, the fact that midlife is defined by the brand of crisis is a little bit of the fact that, yeah, there is a period of time where it does get the low point. And so I don't want to be Pollyanna and say, oh, no, there's nothing goes wrong. There's a lot of things that are happening around 45 to 50. We can come back to that if you want. But I think what's most interesting about this and why I now call it not the midlife crisis, but the midlife chrysalis is because it actually gets better after 50. And so if you think about the caterpillar to butterfly journey, midlife is the chrysalis. It's where it's dark and gooey and solitary, but it's also where the transformation happens. And so what I've been trying to do with my book, Learning to Love Midlife, but also with our MEA, the Modern Elder Academy, the world's first midlife wisdom school, is to help people to understand and reframe their relationship with aging to realize that aging is not exclusively about loss. There are a bunch of things get, get, get better with age. And that's why the subtitle of my book is 12 Reasons Why Life Gets Better with Age. One thing that people struggle with in midlife is their looks. And there is probably the biggest industry in the world, which is anti-aging for women. 
where it's all about trying to delay that aging process. And then for men at the moment, we have this whole idea of longevity, which women have as well. And, you know, men have anti-aging, but a lot of the time, those are the different areas that it's kind of put into. So I wonder like your thoughts around that, any research that you've done, because the anti-aging thing, like you can understand sometimes for women, the positives, but then at the same time, it's like, well, what is that doing to what really is reality? There's a warped sense of the way that some women think that they need to kind of show up in the world as far as the way that they look. Let's call a spade a spade here. The anti-aging industrial complex is really an anti-women industrial complex. Yes. Because it's built on the idea that we want to scare women about their aging process and make them feel badly about it. And we have products and services that will satisfy you and make you look younger. So long story short is anti-aging is a thing. And 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 I, I don't want to be disparaging in any way to someone who wants to have Botox or have some plastic surgery or use some creams that are going to make them look younger. It's perfectly fine. Where it becomes a problem is when it's an obsession. Mm. And when there's a sense that this is the only playing field of life. If you believe that the only way to feel good about yourself in life is based upon your body, wow, you are going to have a very challenging aging process. It doesn't mean you can't do great things to help yourself look better, but the fact is, you know, as we get older, some things get worse. And as I like to say in the book, uh, a six-pack costs more as you get older. It becomes more expensive. What I mean by that is not that, you know, a, you know, a, a six pack of fosters um is more expensive i i i mean to use a little australian i was gonna say good on you uh, are you (laughs) impressed um uh no instead it's like no the six pack abs are harder to maintain as you get older so does that mean you can't do it no you can but you're gonna have to spend three times as much time and energy on it and there's an opportunity cost associated with putting that much time money and energy into trying to maintain something. So women are very worried about being invisible also as they get older. Men are worried about being irrelevant. This this is the dynamic, irrelevance versus invisibility. And what I love about women in their 50s and beyond is those who can own their aging process just as they got comfortable in their own skin, it started to sag. I love that line. Um, They started to realize, you know what? I'm going to make myself look good. I'm going to continue to look good, but I am not going to do this for short-term vanity. I'm going to do it for long-term health reasons and long-term maintenance. I, I think of our bodies as being like a rental vehicle we were issued at birth. So you gave me this rental vehicle. My job is to maintain it. But the truth is once you put more kilometers or miles on a vehicle, it has a few dings and it. it's not quite as good looking as it used to be on the outside. What matters is what it, feel as it feels like on the inside. And I just think that more and more of us really need to realize that aging is a process where the beauty moves from your face to your heart. And if you know that, and you know that is the beauty of aging and the process of aging is to see the beauty moves from the face to the heart, it shifts your perspective on how you want to show up and how you want to create practices that make you more compassionate, make you more emotionally intelligent, make you more wise, um, make you more present. So these are some of the qualities that get better with age. And I think those people who feel like the the only thing they can do is to like keep pushing that rock up the hill when it comes to how they look, that's going to be very tiring after a while. You know, there's beautiful research that you talk about in the book to do with some of Carl Jung's theories that we move in midlife from the ego to the soul. And I think that's so true. Yeah. Can you explain a bit about that to us? Yeah. So Carl Jung and a guy named Richard Rohr, famous Christian mystic in, in the US, have both written a lot about this. They say something like the following, this is paraphrasing, the primary operating system in our life for the first half of our life is our ego. It's the thing that individuates us, that creates us a sense of individuality and originality and makes us feel like we know who we are, et cetera. And it 
serves us well until it doesn't, until we get a little too obsessed with it. And, and the challenge with the ego is it separates. That's its job. Its job is to you know individuate and separate. And yet it is around midlife that something starts to shift inside of ourselves. And primary operating system is moving from the ego to the soul. But no one gave us any warning. And no one gave us operating instructions for this new operating system called the soul. And so people are sometimes quite lost in midlife because something's stirring inside of them, but they don't have words to describe this sense of meaning and purpose that is like a curiosity about the way the world works, or, and, and, but they don't know what to do with it. The way I like to think of it as a metaphor, which I didn't write about in the book, but I've, I've thought about since writing the book, is like when I was growing up, I, I learned ballroom dancing. I was a young boy, you know, I was, and I was supposed to lead the girl dancing on the dance floor. And like, okay, that's my job. And her job is to go in heels backwards and, and get used to the idea that I was going to step on her feet. Um, <laughs> well, I think that the first half of our life, the ego is the male leading the dance. Mm. But I think in the second half of our life, it's the soul that actually takes the lead. And mm-hmm. the ego actually is supposed to be going in heels and backwards. And the ego doesn't like that all that much, but the ego has to have a sense of humor to know, okay, <laughs> I want to be in control, but the soul's in charge now. So I don't think it's about trying to get rid of your ego. I think it's just having your ego be there and recognize that it's going to learn something from the soul. And the soul is wise and the soul is going to help guide you to be a little bit less self-centered and Mm -hmm. um, serve the world a little bit more and to actually learn how to breathe Mm -hmm. and to not take things so personally because the ego takes things very personally. So yeah, for all those reasons that I just, I'm, I'm really fascinated by how people feel a newfound sense of spirituality in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, and they get curious. You know, it's interesting. A lot of people that I've noticed that come to this podcast is female, and a lot of them are sort of in the stages of their life, be it 40s or 50s, where their kids are grown up and they don't really need to take care of them. They might be the later years of school or um, university and their husbands are still busy working and maybe a lot of the time they don't have a job anymore because they've been able to be supported by their husbands or they have a job that they have no no meaning for, like they find no meaning in and they feel very lost. And so, you know, they come to the podcast for guidance. But it's it's an interesting time of life because I wonder... For people who are in that situation, like what guidance can you give them to help them kind of navigate those ways where they're trying to look for themselves again? They're trying to find something that gives them meaning and purpose where a lot of their life, it's been through their children or maybe even their husband. So when I was in my era working with Airbnb, I was writing a book called Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder on a beach in Mexico because I had a home there. And I had a, uh, it's a place called Baja, Baja, California, but it's in Mexico. And so I had a Baja aha one day when I went for a run on the beach, I had an epiphany, which was, why do we not have midlife wisdom schools? Why don't we have a place where people in the middle of their lives can actually reimagine and repurpose themselves, especially if we're living longer? And so for six years now, we've had a singular campus in Mexico, but now a second campus opening in Santa Fe, New Mexico in the U.S. on a 2,600-acre regenerative horse ranch. So our the, the program is based upon help, helping people to cultivate purpose, um, navigate their midlife transitions, own their wisdom, uh, and reframe their relationship with aging. And we've had over 100 people from Australia come. I mean, it's like it, Australians are very, very interested in this program. Some of them do the online program and some have actually come to, a lot of them have come to Baja. Cultivating purpose is a big piece of this. And what I hear you talking about is like, how does a person find their purpose? How do they find that sense of like why they're getting up in the morning? And I, I think, you know, there's sort of a shortcut on this and it doesn't mean it's simple. It's not. But the thing that actually can help you to maybe show the breadcrumbs to finding your purpose are look at what excites you or what agitates you or what makes you curious or what's something from earlier in your life, maybe even childhood, Mm. that feels neglected 
that you felt passionately about. And so let me tell you a quick story about a litigation attorney. She was 60 years old um, when she came to MEA. She hated her job. She was All she was doing all day long was negotiating. And, you know, if you're a litigation attorney, you're just litigating. You're like fighting all the time. And she felt like it had created armor in her body. And you could even see in her body. She was pretty stiff. She was not, she was not limber. Um, and so she was somebody who, and she'd experienced breast cancer 10 years earlier. And she was worried it was going to come back. She felt like her health was at risk because of her profession, but she made a lot of money. She's pretty successful at it. And she didn't know what she was going to do next. And she was looking for like, what's the thing right next, the adjacent thing to a litigation attorney uh, that I could do. But she actually wanted to get rid of it altogether. So she came and she spent, she did a week long program, which is what our programs are. And about midweek, one of the questions we asked, because that's really what we do is we help ask life-changing questions that create interesting conversations. And we asked her like, you know, what was it in childhood that like is like feels forgotten, but you have a yearning for. And she came out of a session. She's like, oh my God, I used to love baking pies with my grandma in the kitchen. I love the smell. And I'm just smelling that smell right now. And when I go to a new city, one of the first things I want to do is look for bakeries. I'm really fascinated by baked goods in different cities and different parts of the world. And and whenever she has friends over for, for dinner and she's, she'll cook, but she really wants people to stay for dessert. And so by the time we got to this, I was like, this is so obvious. You're supposed to become a pastry chef. You go from being a litigation attorney to a pastry chef. And so she said, oh my, I can't do that. That's totally impractical. And this woman has a lot of money in the bank. And it's like, no, it, why is it impractical? You've got money in the bank. She said, because I just, that feels like too much of a departure. And it's like, okay, take the first step. While you're being a litigation attorney and hating it, <laughs> do become, go to a pastry school, a pastry chef school and do that at nighttime and on weekends and see how you like it. So she did that. She liked it. And a few months later, she, she wound down her litigation practice and now she's created a, a, a bakery in her neighborhood and she's actually doing commercial baked goods for, for restaurants and things like that. And she's an entrepreneur. And so not only is she enjoying being a baker, she's enjoying creating a business mm. that is helpful in her neighborhood. So those four questions, what excites you, what agitates you, what makes you curious, and what's something from childhood or younger in your life that feels neglected that could be resurrected? That's one pathway to finding one's purpose. Uh, but let's also recognize that there's a capital P purpose and there's a small P purpose. The capital P purpose is the, the, the kinds of things you put on your resume or the kinds of people, things people admire you for, maybe even talk to talk about at your funeral. But the small P purpose is sometimes the stuff that actually the little things in life that really are meaningful. They're the, they're, they're, you know, the fact that you are the best friend of somebody whose husband passed away and is going through a difficult time and you've been just there for her. A small P purpose could be creating a little dog walk within your local community neighborhood or, or maybe a little community garden. You know, no, you're not going to get in the newspaper made famous for that, but it's like something that, you know, people really cared about. There's a guy named develop, uh, a developmental psychologist named uh, Eric Erickson, who talked about the fact that as as we get closer to age 50 and beyond, the thing that really defines us starts to be, I am what survives me. What will survive us? And whether it's the kids or grandkids, or whether it's writing a book, or whether it's being a mentor to someone, or you know, being a political activist to make a difference in your in your community, finding the thing that feels like, wow, this is the thing that is I'm giving back because the purpose of life is to find your gift. The work of life is to develop it. And the meaning of life is to give it away. And part of what we do at MEA is to help people discover their gift or uncover their gift or rediscover their gift and then look at how you develop it. And then look at how are we giving it away? Because that is what we want to do as we get older. It's interesting. You write in the book about how also in midlife, a lot of the time it goes from us doing a lot for other people, constantly giving out and, and this and that to then the focus being more on ourselves and having the time or the realisation that now we need to take care 
of ourselves rather than, you know, the hustle bustle, especially if you have children, of making sure that they're good and focusing on them. So I think that is really important for people to know because sometimes they never stop that and they get to a point in their life where they feel like, you know, we've all read Bronnie Ware's The Regrets of the Dying, where the biggest regret was being on your deathbed and saying, you know, like, I never did anything for me. I always served other people. I never got to do what I wanted to do. And I just think that's so pertinent for people to hear. Especially for women. So women Mm. are in the caregiving role so often. And there's a term that you may have in Australia that we have in the US called the sandwich generation, where you're taking care of your your parents as they get older while you're taking care of your kids. Mm. Caregiving is a, a quality and a characteristic of so many women, but it's also an archetype. I am the caregiver. And just like Chip, me, I tend to fall into hero. I go into the hero archetype. I will, you know, I'll, 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 I'll save everybody. I'll figure it out. I'll, it, it's all up to me. I can do it. And so if I have that archetype that defines me, I will find willing victims for me to live my <laughs> archetype out on or to set up situations where I can become the hero. Similarly, If you are a natural born caregiver and you've spent so much of your time doing that, you may actually seek out caregiving situations once your parents have passed, once your kids are no longer at home, and once your your spouse doesn't need your caregiving anymore, and then you're lost. And we have an Australian MEA alum who I I feature in the very first chapter, Ange Galloway, and that's exactly her story. She was taking care of everybody else and then all of a sudden she was alone and I was like, now who do I take care of? But she had no idea how to operate a life beyond that archetype. And so it wasn't that Ange needed to, she actually came to MEA and around this time and um, she, she did something called her golden gap year where she took a year to really figure out like what's, how does she want to curate her life differently? But I think the key thing here is to know it's not like it's all or nothing. It's not like saying I'm 100% caregiver or now I'm 0%. It's just about dosing it down. It's, I mean, I can still be a hero, but I don't have to be a hero all the time. I can let other people be the hero. So we just need to know that, that we are willing to let go of that archetype. But then we actually have to say, like, well, what is it we want to replace it with? Um, maybe I want to be the explorer. Or maybe I want to be the court jester. I mean, there's lots of different archetypes out there. And and that Carl Jung sort of famously had 12 of them. But um, important, important work to look at your life and be able to have enough history at, let's say, age 50 to look back and say, okay, <laughs> I know my life story now. Because when you're about a quarter of the way through your life or a quarter of the way through a novel, you don't necessarily know all the, the threads and the through lines and themes. But by the time you're halfway through a novel, you sort of know where it's going. And that's true of your own life too. There's a really interesting part of the book that you write about. I've done a lot of writing about it as well. And I know it's an interesting topic for people is the different people we surround ourselves with. And, you know, the famous quote, birds of a feather flock together. Mm. We grow with life. We want to be growing with life. You know, we want to be seeking new knowledge, finding ourselves. We're not the same people as we were when we were going through school. And if we are, that's kind of maybe a bit of a worry relationships change because we change. We're not the same people as we were um, many years ago. And with that means that potentially, I know for myself in the last couple of years, I have made some of the most amazing friends as an adult. They meet me where I am in this season of my life and they fill my cup as I fill theirs. And then sometimes we see with others that may have been in our life a long time that we just don't have that same, you know, closeness with them anymore. And it was really interesting because there was someone in my life who was really relating to me as someone 20 years ago. And I didn't realise that they still perceived me in that way (laughs) till they said a few things. And I thought, 
God, like I reflected and I thought, they really don't know me. They really don't know this Sarah in the season of her life. And, um, you know, I'm really not very close with that person anymore. But I wonder what your experiences with that have been. So I think one of the miraculous things that we've seen at, at MEA and I've seen in my own life is that when you bring a group of people together, let's say two dozen, there's about 24 people in one of our normal workshop cohorts, and you get to know each other from the inside out. You don't know each other's last name. You don't. You haven't seen each other's LinkedIn profiles. You really don't know anyone's story beyond what you hear from them. And we like to, you know, I, I like to talk about the three vaults in our in how we communicate with each other. The fir- first vault is the, are the facts of our life. The second vault is the stories of our life. And the third vault is our essence. It's what's going on for me right now, emotionally, physically, embodied by like what is going to just about to come out of my mouth that I don't even know what's going to come out of my mouth. And it's like, it's that level of spontaneity. When you get to know people from the third vault, from the inside out, without judgment, and you see the moral beauty, the courage, the compassion, the equanimity, the resilience, the kindness in someone else, oh my God, does it accelerate your process of feeling intimacy and feeling a sense of belonging. And so what's curious for us as a society is that whether it's our family, our blood family, or the people we grew up with, they are not necessarily, I mean, you can have them in your life and I think it's great. And I have so many close friends that I grew up with and I've really built a better relationship with my family over, over the years. But the reality is sometimes you grow in different directions from them and they resent or are threatened by your growth Mm. because it's a system. And if um, Sarah is going to be growing in these ways, I feel like, okay, I have to do the same because I'm systemically linked to Sarah. And so we see it with spouses a lot um, where one spouse is wanting to grow and the other one's like, nope, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with what I, where I am. I'm stuck, but I don't want to get unstuck. <laughs> and, um, and that's hard. And, and so you cannot force someone to become unstuck, but you can over the course of time, whether it's your spouse or your friend or a family member, you can choose to spend less time with that person. And ultimately, if it's really difficult, you can choose to no longer have an association, including getting divorced. Um, in a romantic relationship, but it, it's, you don't want to do that overnight. And what you do want to do is open yourself up to the idea that the more you are evolving um, and the more you are choosing to be an enlightened mirror for other people, if you show up with your enlightened self and someone else is showing up with that, you can feel mm-hmm. the energy between you. And it's not just romantic. It's that, it's that flicker of, the flame that is starting to just like turn from a little kindling to a roaring fire in a fireplace. And that kind of connection, and I'm not talking about the romantic side, that that can happen too. I'm talking about just the sense of collective effervescence, that sense of being so deeply connected to someone else in a conversation that you feel like, I want more of this. Mm. If you don't have that kind of sustenance and nourishment in your, in your, in your friend life right now, just know that it, but start by trying to rebuild it with existing friends hard sometimes because they don't want to change hard because they see you as the Sarah of 20 years ago, but don't count them out yet because they may be thinking exactly the same thing as you have some deeper conversations with the existing people in your life. If they're not going to go there, then you got to start seeking out others as well. Feeling a sense of belonging is one of the most important things we need in our lives. It Mm -hmm. is the number one variable for who lives a longer, healthier, happier life. The number one variable is how uh, invested in social relationships was that person in midlife. Mm. That determines more than anything else, more than what you eat, more than what your work, you know, what your work life is like, what your, what your stress is, what you sleep. The number one variable Um, according to Harvard, according to the Blue Zones folks, and according to Stanford, is 
How invested were you in your social relationships, often in your 40s, 50s, and 60s? It's interesting though, because I think you have to note that we can have a lot of relationships and feel very lonely. So it's like the quality of the relationships is the, the biggest thing because you're better off having three friends that you can trust, that you can be open with, that you can show true emotion than having 15 surface level friends where you just really feel like you can't open yourself up to them and and that you can't even trust what they might say behind your back. Because I think sometimes that can actually cause a lot of angst. Oh, for sure. And And frankly, there's nothing more lonely than being in a marriage with someone who doesn't see you and who doesn't get you. And I'm sure a lot of people who are listening right now can relate. And yes, can you potentially resurrect that marriage or that that relationship, that intimacy? You can, but not always. And it, it does take two to tango in terms of if someone isn't willing to go there, that's hard. But I, it's it's essential, you know. It, this this is this is the lifeblood of our soul our intimate relationships, our ability to connect with some uh, with other people and with something bigger than ourselves. This is what feeds our soul. Mm. It's interesting, you know, if the near-death survivors that I've had on, on this podcast, and especially Dr. Eben Alexander, who's very well known in that field, his greatest learning was that Ram Dass quote, we're all here to walk each other home and help each other on their paths. And we're not here as being individuals and it's only me and my family. We're here to serve as a whole and help one another. That just goes exactly to what you're saying. So I think the more people know that, the more that society will flourish in general. There's no doubt. I mean, we are a collective species in the United States and maybe in Australia as well. There's this rugged individualist and you're supposed to, you can do it all by yourself. And, um, you know, the truth is that one of the most beautiful experiences I've had in my cancer journey is to feel the depth of support for me Mm. and love from a wide variety of people. And the ability for me to surrender to that as opposed to feeling like, you know, I can't, I can't, not only I can't show my vulnerability, which of course I've solved by being so open with my writing, but more just like when on a bad day to say like, can you come over here and just make me some tea? Mm. I'm I'm not getting out of bed today. I just don't feel like I can. And that's not something I would have done in the past. I mean, I would, I would have suffered through it myself. I would not want to have somebody there in, you know, my, my, my room, you know, helping me. Um, cause I'm actually like, I had to do this two months of radiation living in this like hotel room that I'm in here right now. And it's like, it's not my home. I mean, it's, this is not the place that I call home. This is not my, my safe space. It's not the place I find my inspiration in life. And so yeah, sometimes if you're in a place where you are not inspired by the magic, by the magic that you normally have around you in your home, you have to bring that magic in and that magic can be other people. Chip, what is something that you wish for yourself? <laughs> I wish for myself to be a, a really great father. I, I was a foster son father for a kid who, when I was 28 and he was 13. He was a rough kid, uh, African-American kid from a tough neighborhood. And I was a good father, but I, you know, he had a lot of troubles in his life. And so I ultimately had a message in my head, like, I'm not a very good father. But then I had biological sons with a lesbian couple and I'm gay. And I, they're 12, the boys are 12 and nine and I love them deeply. And I spend a lot of time with them. And so what I want for myself is to be a good father because I want Eli and Ethan to, to live the best life possible. So, um, and this is, you know, not, I would say it's not, it's not easy for me. It's not that I don't have the love. I definitely do. But I get distracted with all the other things I want to do in my life. And and then the boys end up not at the top of the list. And so this year, the boys are at the top of the list. I understand completely. Do you have a favorite prayer, saying, or mantra? I love the serenity prayer. Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And when I first heard that in 12-step programs, I, I didn't really notice that it's a wisdom prayer. 
Mm. Serenity, courage, wisdom. And as someone who's created the world's first midlife wisdom school, the idea that, wow, the serenity prayer is really about wisdom. It's about determining what is a constant in your life that you can't change and what's a variable that you can change. So I love that. It is a beautiful prayer. What is your greatest mystical experience? I know it's probably your near-death experience, but besides from that, if you have had any others. Besides from that, you know, there was a, there was, um, a friend of mine, uh, his name was Phoenix, which is interesting because my first hotel I ever created, that rock and roll hotel in San Francisco was called, I renamed it the Phoenix, the mythical bird rising from mm. its own ashes. But I was actually friends with and then dated a guy named Phoenix. And he was a combination of Filipino and Caucasian. And he was a, he was a shaman. He was a really interesting guy. And we were in Bali together and we had not spent a lot of time together. And at that point we were just friends. And, and, and while we were in Bali, it became something more than friends. And the mystical experience was that he was going to die in the next six months. He was 40 years old and I had no idea he was going to die and he didn't know either, but he had, he had an inkling something was going on. And, um, and he used to, he spent a lot of time in, in the jungle. So he would get infectious diseases and things like that. Um, and so long story short is one night, the most mystical experience I had ever had was one night we were out to dinner at a restaurant that was very dark and we were near a waterfall and we were outdoors and it was, you know, you, I couldn't see his face all that well, but all of a sudden his face was like a, in, you know, a zoom call where the, the quality of the reception is not quite right. And, and, and it's like, all of a sudden there's like this, his light, his face is sort of a bunch of pixel dots. Yeah. And, and so I was talking with him, he was talking normally, but his, he he was he didn't he didn't look human. It's not like he looked bad. It's just that he looked like he was sort of ethereal. He he was and and I was I said that to him and I said like I want to take a picture of you right now. He says no, don't 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 take a picture. Just like just experience it. Like and he said I sort of feel that way about you right now, Chip. I sort of seeing, you know, maybe it's the light here, maybe maybe it's whatever it is. But and then we went our separate ways and we saw each other again in Hong Kong in between I was in India and I, I, I had a, had a Skype call with him back then. There's no zoom it was Skype and on the Skype call, he, it's it happened again. And I was like, it's like in Star Trek, there's this thing like beam me up Scotty <laughs> where somebody actually has to like, okay, you have to be vaporized like from a, a human form to like somewhere else. And, that's what was happening. And within months after that, he passed away, Unex, you know, no, with no explanation. Turns out he had a, a viral bud, bug in his brain that he'd gotten in the jungle. And, but I was seeing, it was almost like I was seeing him in the process of evaporating. Wow. And so that was one of the craziest things I've ever seen and experienced. And there, there was no, there was, there was, there were no mind altering substances involved. Um, but it felt like there were. What is a life of greatness to you? A life of greatness is service. You know, I am here to serve, you know, I, as a man, that's a good thing to say. If you're a woman and that's what you say, like, Oh my God, you spent your whole life in service. Like I, I don't want to serve anymore. Uh, because when I first said this in one of my workshops, like a couple of women came up to me and said, like, I loved what you said, but that is not mine. Chip. <laughs> I'm not here to serve at this point. I am here to have pleasure. I am here. I'm here to enjoy myself. I'm here to learn. They may have a different thing, but for me, I am here to serve. There's a French phrase, noblesse oblige. To the nobility co comes the obligation. And I believe in success oblige. To the successful comes the obligation to give back. And so greatness for me is seeing my ROI, not the return on investment, but my ripple of impact of the things I do in, in life. And, and to know that I'm doing that not because I'm trying to get my name, you know, in the newspaper, because, but I'm doing it because it just feels good to me and to whomever, whomever I'm giving it to. Chip Connolly, you're definitely doing that. Your work in discussing midlife and and your writing about it and all your research is having a profound effect on such a huge number of people. 
So thank you so much for the beautiful conversation today. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for the work you do. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Your Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my manifestation course and meditations, head to the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com or this week's episode show notes to find a link. If you love what you heard, we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. Listener.